is dealing with our friends, the Corinthians. It's kind of cool, actually. You, you, you work through a book like this. You feel like you get to know the people you're dealing with. Uh, I feel like I'm getting to know Paul. I feel like I'm getting to know these Corinthians. Uh, and, and Paul's dealing with these Corinthians in, in a number of different ways. And, and this church is in bad shape. I mean, it's amazing that he calls them Christians, I think. It's in bad shape. They've got all these issues of they're exalting different leaders and they're, uh, they're living in the flesh and they've got all this pride in their spiritual giftedness and they're distancing themselves from the Apostle Paul and from his gospel. I mean, this, the church is really messed up, but he just keeps shepherding them just keeps loving on them and the issue right now that he's dealing with in chapter 8 is that the corinthians have this knowledge that there is one god and they're using that as their rationale for participating in feasts in corinth and these feasts are feasts that are being that are taking place in the temples of idols like an idol to to the god to the to the Greco-Roman god Serapis or something like that. He's, they go to these temples. They eat these feasts that have food that's been sacrificed to these gods, and they're eating in the presence of this god. That's the mentality of of what's happening at these feasts. And so, Paul says that knowledge of one god. And the fact that you know, Corinthians, there's only one God, you're using that as rationale to go to eat at these temples saying, hey, these aren't gods anyways. These are false idols. There there, there are no gods besides our God. And so they go eat at these idolatrous feasts, and it causes other people in the church to see that, other people who used to worship those gods, to stumble. So... They, they engage in an act of worship of a false god because of other people who are using their monotheistic convictions to secure their rights. We have a right to eat this food because there is no god but our god, and we can continue to participate in this cultural event because these, this food is offered to, to nothing. Well, Paul says, okay, there's a couple problems with that, and the first problem, and this consumes all of chapter 8, is that that's just not loving to the rest of the people in the church who are stumbling over your right. So Paul is wanting to move them away from this selfish rights-focused mentality to uh, lay down your rights for somebody that you love mentality. What I want to do today is linger a little bit over how Paul responds because as Paul responds to this problem One of the things that he does is he affirms their monotheistic beliefs. Like, he really affirms their monotheistic beliefs. And I just want to linger over it today. Listen to this. Listen to Paul's affirmation of the Corinthians' belief that there is one God. Listen to how Paul does this in chapter 8, starting in verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. And that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. I affirm your monotheistic convictions. Big time. I want to linger over, over this because um, this is important. This is, it's really important what Paul is saying here and I think what Paul is doing here. But first, what, what's Paul saying here? He, he's saying something positive and he's saying something negative. Here's something positive that he's saying. There, verse 6, for us there is one God. There's just one God. And negatively, verse 4, we know that an idol has no existence and there is no God but one. 
There is one God, positive, negative. There are no other gods. There aren't any. Some so-called gods. Now this is a tough pill to swallow in a pluralistic society because Christianity, hey, I, you, you need to come to, deal, to, to, to terms with this. Christianity is a very exclusive, exclusive religion. It excludes. Not exclusive in the sense that you can't come to Christ. Hey, if you're thirsty, come. Anyone. Anyone. You're not excluded. It's exclusive in this sense. It defies the worship of any so-called God or power except the single Trinitarian Godhead of the Bible. It excludes all gods. In fact, Christianity will not even acknowledge the actual existence of such so-called gods. Allah of Islam is no God. He does not exist. The Jesus of Mormonism is no God. He does not exist. He's not a God. The God of the Bible is jealous for His glory. Here's another hard truth. Jesus Christ... God the Father, Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit, our God wants His glory. He alone is the maker and the ruler of the heavens and the earth and all that dwells in them. Psalm 19.1 The heavens declare... The heavens are declaring something. The heavens declare the glory of God, not Allah. Not raw. They declared the glory of my God and our God. Ascribe to Yahweh. Ascribe to Yahweh or the Lord, we translate it. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory. Do His name. His glory is due to Him. Isaiah 45, 24, To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in Yahweh, only in the Lord, it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. He will not have it. He wants His glory. And if He didn't, He would be an idolater because there is none like Him. There is one God and there is no other and God will not tolerate cosmic plagiarism. Now in verse 6, Paul kind of explodes in this praise. Not only is there only one God, but Paul has something to say about this one God. Verse 6, for us there is one God. And he could have just stopped there. I agree with you, Corinthians, there's just one God. Good point. I believe that too. But he goes on, verse 6. There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. He, he, Paul just gets worked up. There, there's, there's one God, the Father, for whom it all exists, from whom it all exists. There's one Lord Jesus, through whom it all exists, and through whom we exist. What, what's he doing? Why, why, does he, why does he feel the need to kind of elaborate? Why does he have this surge of praise? And that, that's a question that I, I, I'm wanting to, to look at before 
I dig into what does verse 6 mean, how does Paul's colorful affirmation of his monotheistic belief serve his agenda to move the Corinthians away from selfishness toward love? He's trying to move them. And, and, and of course, they're, what, what they're stuck on is their knowledge that there's one God. So Paul takes some time. This is kind of risky. He takes some time to talk about the fact that there's one God. Well, they already know that. In fact, they're, they're kind of they're, they're using that as some sort of rationale. So why does he go into it more? It's kind of a risky move if he's trying to move them away from this selfish, rights-driven mentality. Why does he do this? could be that he's just getting excited, like I just did. Just, he just starts talking about one God, and he just goes off. But it, it's too risky to do that in this situation. Because they're, all, they're already caught up in the fact that there's one God. They're already using it as rationale. So what's he doing? What's his strategy? Well, I think Paul is wanting to give the Corinthians a clearer vision of this one God. Because Paul knows revelation... That is, seeing more clearly leads to celebration, affections in the heart, and that brings about transformation. You live differently. Revelation leads to celebration, leads to transformation. Now, I'm going to unpack that a little bit. I'm going to start with the last of those three, transformation. And Paul knows that genuine transformation in a person's life, it has to come from somewhere. Christianity doesn't believe you just start really trying hard to be different. It doesn't just happen. You don't just decide to change. If you're going to live differently as a Holy Spirit-empowered and renewed human being, it has to flow from divinely operated alterations within you. God is not interested in just, I've talked about this before, modifying your behavior. He doesn't want you to just have a checklist of new things to do. Okay, I read my Bible today. I said kind words to my wife this morning. I prayed when I got to church. I've been fairly smiley today. I'm being a good Christian. God doesn't want you to just have to think that you just you just check off all these lists of things to do and then somehow like you're being you're you're a new creation. No, he he God doesn't go for behavior modification. He goes for total life transformation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You're new. Transformation. And the way that the Holy Spirit does that is by going after the heart. Because your heart, your affections, your passions, your desires, that's what drives your actions. Your actions are simply a reflection of your passions. And because of that, what you do gives evidence to what you love. Does that make sense? What you do, it, 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 it testifies to what it is that you actually love, what you're into. We're like mirrors. Whatever it is that you give your heart's affection to, whatever treasure that is, it, it reflects off of you into your life. So you can look at people's lives and get a good sense for what they really love. I mean, just listen to how they talk. What are they into? Look at how they spend their money. What do they love? You'll, you'll start to see it in their life. Your life takes the shape of your delights, your look-alike. For better or worse, your look-alike of your treasure. 
Here's an example of worse. Psalm 115. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. These are idols. People worship these things. They have ears, but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. You put your trust in an idol, you start to become like that idol. You start reflecting your treasure. People can look at your life and see evidence of what you really value. That's a worse scenario. You look alike for better or worse. Here's a for better example. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. What are you into? Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You start to look like what you love, for better or worse. And Paul knows that if he wants to see genuine change in these Corinthians, wants to really see their lives change, wants to really see them start loving their brothers and sisters, he knows if he wants genuine transformation to happen in their lives, then there must be a reconfiguration of the Corinthians' disposition toward God at the most fundamental heart level. Paul knows that transformation in your life flows from celebration in your heart. It's got to get their hearts moving, which means that Paul really wants the Corinthians to love Christ. He wants them to love God. That's what he's after, and that's the goal of ministry. I want you to love God. It's the goal. It's precisely how God is going to be most glorified in our lives. So, every disciple-making follower of Jesus, every parent, every leader, every pastor, every Christian should be praying, speaking, living, pursuing this primary essential goal. I want you to genuinely love our God. I want you to love Him. And if you love Him, you'll start to live differently. You'll be transformed. Because transformation flows from celebration. Which puts us in a tough spot. Because I don't have any ability to make you love anything. And you don't have the ability to make anybody else love it. I mean, we're stuck. It's the goal of my whole life and your whole life to love God and help others love Him. You can't do anything about it. And if our goal is that others would love Him and live for Him, celebrate Him and be transformed, then what do we do? Well, as best as we, as best as we know how, we try to put Him on display. We try, to, we try to show and explain and describe and commend in hopes that you might see it. Because in order for God to be celebrated, He must first be seen. Celebration flows from revelation. Hey, you'll never worship a God that you've never seen. You'll never love and have a passion for a God you've never had any glimpse of. Why would you? There's too many good things out there that you can see. 
And that's why for some of you, perhaps, the things of the Lord are just not all that interesting to you. Perhaps you've never seen Him. Because if you'd truly seen Him, I guarantee you, you would adore Him. The, the, the best part of eternal life is not that you're going to be free from pain. It's not that you're going to see your parents again. It's not that, it's, that there's going to be endless rounds of golf and good wine. All of which I think are very likely going to be part of the eternal state. Great blessings. It will be wondrous. But that's not the best part of eternal life. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You want to know what heaven's going to be like? The new heavens and the new earth. Listen to this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. Hey, the greatest thing about eternal life is that God is going to be there with us. Hey, and if that doesn't move your heart, then you're probably not saved. Because you probably don't love Him. Which means that you probably haven't seen Him. I want you to love God. More than anything, I want you to love God. I don't care where you are right now. You might be the worst hypocritical heathen in the world. You might be lukewarm. You might be, you might have seen him and tasted him and it was wonderful. And and you remember, remember it. Your first love, the book of Revelation says. You remember, it's so sweet to know Christ. And you just, you're you're growing cold. Or you might be this morning right now, just, your heart is just bubbling over with worship. Wherever you are right now, I just want you to love Him more. To that end, I want you to see Him more clearly. I want you to see the Lord. That's what church is all about. Seeing God revealed in Christ and celebrating Him. That's what preaching is all about. Revelation through the proclaimed Word of God and celebration of the God who's being proclaimed. The main point of preaching is not that you would come out of this room in half an hour or whatever with a list of things to do and and a few things that you can apply to your life. That's a goal of preaching. It's not the goal of preaching. The main goal of preaching is that you would walk out of here and go, whoa, I just saw God. And, 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 And it was somehow stirring to meet with God through the proclaimed Word. And that's what the gospel is all about. A display of God in Christ Jesus for the sake of stirring up the faith of worshipers. The gospel is not something you do. The gospel is news. You you hear it. You go, whoa, that's good news. The gospel is what God has done for you. And then it is proclaimed so that you hear it and with the eyes of your heart you see Christ and worship. That's what it's all about. That's why we say we're all about beholding and broadcasting. 
I want to see him, and I want to put him on display in hopes that people will worship him. That's all I can do. Holy Spirit has to move the heart. That's all you can do. Holy Spirit has to move the heart. You've got to put him on display. Tell somebody some news. Have you ever seen God? Well, Paul wants the Corinthians, I think, to see God. Because he knows that revelation leads to celebration, and celebration leads to transformation, Paul gives his affirmation. That wasn't supposed to. Paul affirms his monotheistic beliefs because he's painting a clearer picture so that they can see and love and change. And that's how this expressive verse 6 feeds into his agenda to move them, move their hearts, move their behavior. He wants them to see our God. So that's what I want to do. I want to take a look at Paul's God. And uh, I'm going to read verse 6 again. Behold your God. Verse 6. For us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Now this is really interesting. Paul is here affirming monotheism, and the first thing he does is names two people. The Father and Jesus. And what we're going to see here is a little bit of texture of, of how the Trinitarian Godhead works. The Trinity. Fundamental Christian doctrine. One God, three persons. Only two of them are named here. One God. God the Father. God the Son. God, the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. The Father is God, but the Father is not the Son. And the Father is not the Spirit. The Son is God, but the Son is not the Father. The Son is not the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God, but the Holy Spirit is not the Father. The Holy Spirit's not the Son. The Holy Spirit's the Holy Spirit. So I tell my girls, is the Father God? They say, yes. Is the Father the Spirit? And sometimes they'll say, yes. And I say, no, the Father's not the Spirit. The Father's the Father. Try that with your kids. If you, if you, if you, if you uh, want to try and help yourself be careful about articulating the Trinity, try to explain that to your kids. God is. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is the Father, not the Son. I don't know. I could throw out a bunch of little analogies with apples and water and stuff. You know, people try to make these analogies to make sense of the Trinity. And uh, I don't know that they do any convincing. Uh, The Holy Spirit has to move your heart to believe in this thing that you probably just can't understand. This is this is weird. One God, three persons. Now, how do they differ from one another? We're going to just look at how the Father and the Son have some different functions here in this Trinitarian monotheistic Godhead. The Father. Two things are said about the Father. Verse 6. For us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. From whom are all things. All things are from God the Father. He's the originator. He's the architect. He's the source. He's the maker of all things. There's nothing that has been made that does not come from Him. All things are from Him. He's the source of life. And the creator of all things. He's the source of all things pertaining to our salvation. It all comes from the Father. Who sent the Son? Who sent Him? 
The Father sent the Son. John 12, 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. The Son just comes and he just does what the Father told him to do because the Father sent him because all things are from the Father. Even the Son recognizes an authority from the Father and has been sent by the Father because the Father has a plan. All things from the Father. It's just interesting. Of course, it's Father's Day. We're on a Father passage. I think that's cool. Same thing kind of happened on Mother's Day. No, didn't plan that. What, what does the Father analogy communicate? What's, what's God trying to communicate? It's not the only analogy that God uses. I want you to think of me like a, a king. You guys are familiar with kings. I want you to think of me like a rock. That will help you understand what I'm like. I want you to think of me like a shepherd. You know what shepherds do, right? These are are analogies to help us understand how to think of this God. And one of those analogies is that he's a father. By the way, this is why sometimes our prayer life is kind of sometimes very tender, sometimes very honoring and bold. It's because sometimes... We're thinking of him in terms of king. Sometimes we're thinking of him in terms of of shepherd or or, or the rock or or the bridegroom of his people. So these different, oh, a lion, that was another one. Think of me like a lion. So why does God want us to think of him as a father and not an uncle or our grandmother? It's really Jesus who taught us to think this way. He, he told us to think this way. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, Jesus said. And yet, your heavenly Father, your, your Father, He feeds them. Are you not more of more value than they? Or if you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? It was Jesus who who taught us to think of Him as our Father. What's it supposed to to mean? What, what What does Father mean? Well, among other things, it means that he's the source. All things are from him. He's the the source. He's he's a giver to the family. He's a provider for the family. You see, Judaism was not only a a patriarchal society. It was what Andreas Kostenberger and Daniel Block call a patrocentric society. Here's what Kostenberger says. The spokes of a wheel... Family life radiated outward from the Father as its center. The the community was built around the Father and bore His stamp in every respect. The the Father is feeding into His family. He's, He's giving. He's pouring in. In 2003, Touchstone Magazine reported the results of a Swiss study. And what they were studying was, what's the connection between parents attendance of church, and children growing up to be worshipers. What's the connection? And the study concludes like this. In short, if a father does not go to church, no matter how faithful his wife's devotions, only one child in 50, 2%, will probably become regular adult worshipers. If a father goes regularly, regardless of the practice of the mother, between two-thirds and three-quarters of their children will become churchgoers. That went from 2% to 66%. At least. 
If a father goes but irregularly, like he just sometimes comes to church, regardless of his wife's devotion, between half and two-thirds of their offspring will find themselves coming to church regularly or occasionally. Okay, if dad doesn't go to church, one in 50. If dad only comes sometimes, one out of every two. Why? Because in God's design, fathers you're a source of life for your family. It just works that way. It's just how God made the world. I want to honor you fathers. You're, you're here. Just because you're even here right now means you are giving something to your family. I'm not saying be here and be a deadbeat. But just the fact that you're here, it means something to your children. I was in tears this morning, and I'm hoping it's not going to happen right now. As I was driving over here, I was praying, God, will you, will you put a fire in my heart, and will you help me just be ready in my heart to share with this body this message? And as I was driving over here this morning, I was thinking of Ben playing keys, keys up here. And, and I thought of Caleb and Henry. How many of you guys ever saw your dad worship? Like, worship the Lord. What a gift. I mean, it's just an awesome gift to see your father worshiping Jesus. That gives something to your family. Now, I'm not saying all you guys need to be up here all, you know, doing this when you're worshiping. But but your kids are watching you dads. And, And the challenge for you is you, you, you need to be in the mentality of when I walk in the door, everybody's heart in your home, when you, when you walk in the door, goes, the shepherd's home, the shepherd's home. Your kids are, blah, 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 blah. daddy, 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 the shepherd is here, the shepherd is here. You got to put on your daddy hat when you walk in the door. I know you are tired, you're just totally worn out, and the kids, at the age that most of the kids are in this church, they're like just, their rationality is not high yet. It's not conversation. It's just chaos control. And, and I, you're tired. You have got to put on the daddy hat when you walk in the door. I used to work uh, for Target uh, Building Services in Minneapolis, and I would come home from work. And I would be, I would literally, as I'm driving, pulling into the driveway of our apartment complex, I would be thinking, put on the daddy hat right now. You walk in the door, you are father and husband. Do not check out. Guys, don't check out. You got to battle. I have to battle. Your kids love you. And they need you because you're a source for them. You're a source of life for them. God's design is that the Father is a source that overflows into the home, filling the veins of your sons and your daughters with affirmation and strength and hope and stability and provision, not just financial provision, that's part of it. When you get in the door, they need you to provide for them. Affirmation, love, discipline, management, service, instruction, be there. That's healthy fatherhood. And brothers, when we live like that, it tells a story of another father from whom are all things flowing to his children. 
tells a story. And not only are all things from him, but we exist, Paul says, for him. For the Father. Just as he is the origin of all things, so there's a corresponding truth. Truth, We, we exist for him. He's the designer, and we are part of his design. We're created for his objectives. Some people are you know, asking this question, what's my purpose in life? And, and, and they try to get real specific before they understand the, the bedrock. You know, am I supposed to be a violin player? Am I supposed to be a plumber? Am I supposed to work in business? Am I supposed to take over dad's business? What, what am I supposed to do? What, what, what's, what's my purpose? Well, we're each made for a purpose, and you can start here. You're made for God. That's your, that's your bedrock purpose. You are made for Him. You exist for Him. To know Him, to enjoy Him, and to reflect Him. Revelation, celebration, transformation. You exist for God. So that in your life, He might be supreme in everything. Supreme in your devotion, supreme in your priorities, supreme in your agenda, and supreme in your energies, supreme in your affections, your pursuits, your vocation, your household, the whole gamut. Supreme. God is supreme. You exist for Him. Have you ever seen Him? This God for whom? You exist. And do you know where to look if you want to see it? You must look at the one through whom the Father accomplishes his agenda. Namely, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Though all things come from the Father and exist for the Father, the Father actually accomplishes His purposes through the Son, oddly enough. The Son is a mediator between God and man. God the Father is the designer. God the Father is the architect, the source from whom and for whom it all flows. And God the Son is the one through whom the plan is executed. For example, God the Father creates the world by speaking words. Remember this? Genesis 1. He just speaks. And Jesus is the Word through whom the world is made. John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, He being Jesus, namely the Word, in the beginning when God was speaking words, He, Jesus, the Word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him, was not anything made that was made. Jesus Christ is the one through whom the Father, from whom are all things, God created the world. But not just the world. All things come from the Father, including our salvation, and all things are through the Son, including our salvation. That's exactly what Paul says. One Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. God the Father is the source of our salvation. He sent the Son, and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the one through whom redemption is accomplished, of course, so that Jesus became the visible, the tangible mediator between God and mankind when He gave Himself so that God's grace for us might be accomplished through Jesus. 
But not only are all things from the Father and through Jesus, but our existence for the Father is an existence that must take place through Jesus. We exist for the Father through Jesus. It's interesting language, isn't it? We exist for the Father through Jesus. Which means that if we're going to live for the Father, then we must do so in complete dependence upon the mediator. You want God to be supreme and you want to live for God? You want God to be supreme in your affections, supreme in your devotion, supreme in your attention? You want to live for the one true God and be caught up in His purposes? Do you want to live for Him? Do you want your life to be a pleasant and beautiful offering for God? Do you want the Heavenly Father to be pleased with you and happy with your presence when you approach Him? There's only one way for my existence to be pleasure to God. There's only one way for the Father to receive me into His presence with joy. There's only one way for me to have confidence that my meager, sinful existence might be fit to be recognized as for Him. One way, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except what's it say? Through me. You want to be with the Father and you want to live for the Father, then you have to come through Jesus. Our existence before God the Father must be through Jesus. Christianity does not endorse any attempt to, be, to, to, to come before and live for God independent of a mediator. Don't go to God independent of a mediator. You must have a go-between. There must be something, someone, some priest, a high priest, the great high priest, somebody must be there to mediate for you. You can't just come in on your own. You walk into the presence of a holy God in our sinful state, and we will be destroyed. He's holy. We're sinful. You must come through Christ, you know that you know that old hymn. Come to the Father through Jesus the Son. You have to come through Jesus the Son and give Him the glory. You come bring the Father glory through Jesus the Son. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. Hebrews 10. Here's the image. In the heavenlies there is a temple. And we have confidence to enter in to the holy place through the curtain. One of our songs this morning talked about the veil was torn. Talking about this, this big curtain that kept people out of the holy of holies, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. This is where God, this was God's throne. He was seated above the cherubim. This ark, this golden ark. You, you don't go into that most holy place. The high priest goes in. You don't go into the presence of God until Jesus comes. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus through the curtain, that is, 
the scripture says, through his flesh. We have confidence to enter the holy places through the, by the blood of Jesus through the curtain, that is through his flesh, through the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near, he says, with a true heart and full assurance of faith. You can come before the Father. You can live for the Father through Jesus the Son. You know, there's a lot of people out there who are trying to come before God, and they think that their life is just not that bad. You have to come through Jesus. Your life is that bad because God is that good. There's only one God from whom and for whom are all things, and there is only one way to receive his love and to live for him, and it's through the mediator, Jesus Christ, and absolute dependence upon him. Behold your God and rejoice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that these words would land on tender hearts. And that you would be pleased to cause our hearts to celebrate through your Holy Spirit as we behold the glory of our God, three in one. And would you be pleased to transform us so that our lives look more and more like a reflection of you. So that you get the glory. 